नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार वर्क पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑलराइट टुडेस टॉपिक इज धर्मा हिंदुइज्म एंड इंडिया एंड आई एम गोइंग टू बी डिस्कसिंग दिस विद माय गुड फ्रेंड हर्ष गुप्ता हर्ष थैंक्स फॉर कमिंग ऑन द पॉडकास्ट हाय कुशल सो गुड टू बी बैक ऑलराइट हर्ष सो so i was thinking about how how do we have a discussion the you know the first accusation somebody is going to throw at us is like itna vague subject rakhte ho isko isko discuss kaise karoge so obviously uh, because again people come on the charvak podcast so they expect some philosophy so as a student of philosophy let's let's be honest and be accurate so if we were to define these terms i know these are not final definitions but we we working definitions let let's start with some sort of a working definition we don't need to define what india is but at least with terms like dharma and in, in hinduism so how would you say what is your working definition when you use such terms Kushal, thank you once again for having me. Um, you know, when we were talking about the podcast, maybe a week or two earlier, I think initially we were thinking of discussing Hindu nationalism. You know, and um, I think the, actually the main reason I requested you to kind of rename the podcast was exactly what you just said. That even if it's not a perfect definition, uh, we should at least have some working definitions of these terms, uh, because if we're using them all the time. uh without some regard not to mention that you and i are not scholars of hinduism or dharma we are not sanskritists we don't understand all the aspects much less even most of the aspects but nonetheless we are of this world and we have to discuss it so uh we need to have some working definitions and obviously if somebody comes up with better definitions i think both you and i are ready to change our minds on that um So I think the re- so the way I think about it, and I think it's a bit of a personal definition because obviously there is no Pope here, there is no uh, Vatican authority. I think of uh, so and definitions once again. Before I go further, definitions by their very nature have to be, um, you know, what is known as the lowest common denominator. They have to be the least uh, attributes uh, that you can find which are common to everything that you're trying to define. So a definition will never. fully describe one aspect of what you or i or somebody else might see as hindu dharma or bodh dharma or jain dharma because that's not the point of a definition for that you need subsets and you need to go into details a definition is supposed to be rigorous and the least common denominator so having said that and please help me out here i wrote about it a few months ago but then i have not followed up on this um so dharma is i would see in that least common denominator sense you know any set of religious or spiritual ideas um which are basically following the golden principle right i mean they're basically saying uh that my salvation or moksha or whatever you want to call it um i might have certain views about it what is good what is not good but ultimately it's about me uh i'm not making a judgment that if you do not follow this path or panth or do not follow or do not worship this god or ishwar that you will burn in hell forever right so there is that sense of mutual respect and not just acceptance as a lot of people have mentioned from swami vivekananda's time if not earlier right there is this the sense of mutual respect so there is a sense of this spiritual democracy if you want to use a modern term that the basic structure of dharma is everything not just in india across the world which are spiritual paths that are more concerned about the person who is following it and less concerned about who is being damned by not following it. right i think i think that's a common definition and obviously we can see that in a way it excludes abrahamic religions especially the two proselytizing abrahamic monotheistic religions i mean judaism may be a border case 
um, which might be interesting to discuss at some point. But basically, all pagan religions, pagan again being a term that was defined by the other, in this case, the Christians, all shamanic religions, uh, you know, all what what Jan Osman called primary religions, and then he called, you know, this kind of Abrahamic counter-revolution to be secondary religions. Um, all these nature, monotheist, polytheist, pantheist, panentheist religions, I think instead of using a foreign word like pagan to kind of have the superset for it, we should use the word dharma as a superset for it. Now, within the dharma, you can have a subset called Indic. Now, Indic is everything about dharma, which is related to the culture of the Indian subcontinent. It need not be Indian citizens. It need not be even Indian residents. It could be people who have been impacted by the Indian subcontinent, who've been living in Indonesia or Vietnam for a long time, or recent immigrants to North America or Middle East, or, or people who, were in, who went as indentured servants to parts of Latin America or Africa or Oceania, Pacific Islands. Uh, so the Indic is, I would say, a broad of us. That obviously we can already see includes Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, and what is now interestingly called Hinduism, and we'll come to that also. I personally see within Hindu, within first dharma, then Indic. Within Indic, uh, we should directly go to the puns. I don't think we should say Hinduism and Sikhism and Buddhism and Jainism. If you say Hinduism, and then you equate that as, an, as a path with Sikhism or Jainism, etc., that actually creates a lot of terminological confusion, well-intentioned as it might be, and leads to real-world violence as we've seen in the last few decades. Right. So this is not an abstract discussion that we're having here. Uh, I would say it's better to like within Indic, you can directly go to like Shaivite, Vaishnavite, Shakti, uh, you know, in terms of uh, worship. And then that could include uh, Sikh could be one Panth there. Equal, completely respected Panth, separate but equal Panth within that Dharmic and then Indic uh, subset. And you can have different ways of classifying the philosophies, right? Astika, Nastika. And some of these ways of worship or philosophies, these paths or puns together, like you could underline them together and say in common parlance, we call that Hinduism. And again, that's not just colloquialism because it has real world legal consequences. We do not live in a state where there is complete separation of religious identity and the government, um, you know, especially the union government, but even the state governments. So we need we, so the word Hinduism is nothing to be afraid of. It's nothing to be shy of. It's not necessarily historically just a negative definition, although that is clearly a part of it. Um, but if you have to be a bit more rigorous, uh, because, you know, so I was talking to a friend of mine, a Sikh friend of mine, he lives outside of India. He's now become a Khalistani. And I was, I was trying to ask him, you know, you know, like, I'm not going to take his name, obviously. So what is it that, you know, if, if I am, uh, what is it that thing that you think makes me different from you? Uh, you know, what is it? What is the superstructure in your mind? And he said, well, okay, we don't have the caste system, for example. I mean, First of all, that's, that may not be true uh, in terms of Sikhi on the ground and Hinduism, obviously, on the ground. But let us say it's part of the normative attachment thereof, right? And I said, well, what, what, what about Hindus who not just practically do not follow it, but do not believe in it? Like, aren't you in trying to create a kind of a very coherent definition of me actually creating a definition of the other, which does not exist? Like, you are essentializing uh, by method of exclusion. Everybody who else is remaining is somebody who, according to you, there are people who very proudly, like for example, me, we are Murti Pujaks. There are uh, Hindus who do not uh, do idol worship and not just as a response to Abrahamic religions, but they they might directly not for whatever reason. So there is no definition of Hinduism that says you must follow caste, 
well, we can go to varna jati if you don't want to use a european word you must do murti there is there is no must definition right there is so the my point is hinduism as an equivalent of jainism or sikhism becomes a problematic definition it's better to kind of elide the term altogether go from dharma to indic and then the various puns and some of those puns you can classify as hinduism together colloquially as well as legally uh but without uh, and but and you should never force anybody to say you are a hindu like in in a, in a, especially in a legal sense i don't think that is useful although of course if you are forming a framework in which theoretically you cannot differentiate a hindu and a non hindu you can say so while always being very respectful that you know i'm not interested in forcing you to be considered a hindu right and this is not just about hinduism jainism sikhism you know, there's donia polo in arunachal pradesh there is a sarnaism in like jharkhand there are there are the, the mithai people of manipur have their own kind of shamanistic religions you know and so how do you define that like okay within indic but not hinduism if not hinduism why not hinduism so are we then also saying that only a certain form of quote unquote mainstream practices are hinduism and others are not because uh, sometimes we like to have it both ways when we want to increase our numbers and influence we want to include that in the umbrella but but when we want to define it in in our way the way which we are comfortable with then we say this is hindu and this is unhindu so we cannot have it both ways right i mean if you are trying to define it if you including them in your numbers then their practices have to be your practices or at least a part of your practices right which is why i think it's very important to understand once again before i just conclude my opening remarks that we are discussing the definition we are not discussing the entire body of a particular panth that is obviously beyond us like we're talking about the most complicated set of beliefs rituals practices philosophies in the world like the indian subcontinent has historically been the been the most populated region of the world so it's impossible for harshan kushal to discuss this in one podcast much less 100 podcasts right so it's the definition has to be consistent whereby to increase influence in numbers we don't go the lowest common denominator sense but then we turn around and say by the way definitionally you are not a hindu uh because then the two don't go together then you, that's fine if you want to define a subset that way which is perfectly okay like you want to define a subset but you cannot uh, lay claim to the superset uh so that's how i think about it. like dharmic indic then various puns philosophies some of which collectively can colloquially or even legally be called hindus yeah so this is uh, there, there are some interesting points and we need to unpack a few of them now as far as the legality of uh, the term hinduism is concerned we'll i'll come to dharma later on and i'll give you my views now it's very simple i think the indian legal system actually nailed it right when it went with a negation it worked went with a negative definition when it actually tried to define what hinduism is in my view i think that was the most sensible thing to do as far as the complexity of indian society was concerned because even for our you know legal eagles in that sense they knew what we were not we were definitely not the christian we were definitely not the muslim matlab we were not islam and christianity because there is just there are just some fundamental claims in islam and christianity that are just not going to overlap with any indian subset including the arya samaj including the arya samaj by the way so that was a very smart thing to do and i think at the legal level i think india should leave the definition of hinduism in terms of what a hindu is in basically somebody who is not obviously they add a, a jewish and a parsi too in that definition in india while i still think the parsi definition the parsi terminology could be added in the hindu side th- those are my views considering zoroastrianism and the connection of the zenda vesta and the rigveda uh, till such a detail i mean if anybody uh, reads the zenda and because you live in bombay 
yeah so <laughs> so in that sense but as far as dharma is concerned dharma is is a slightly more complex issue which is where i have also personally grappled with uh, what it is uh, what it it is at a definitional level because it is such a contextual word where it is your duty at sometimes it is what you're supposed to do at sometimes it is the natural order of things at sometimes and uh, even as somebody who goes into the verb root and tries to understand what the word means and the multiple meanings of dharma it actually becomes very complicated but yes as we say when you are living a life and and when you are trying to narrow things down to a discussion we need working definition so i have always believed something that there are some essential characteristics that are there uh, in ideologies that have originated in india and you rightfully pointed out one of them that is mutual respect i think ahimsa again i i i want to delineate ahimsa from pacifism uh, ahimsa is a very unique uh, concept that was developed in india where uh, now somebody might come back and say but there were european pacifists there was tolstoy there were many other people even there were so, uh, you know christian scholastic scholars who were also preaching pacifism at some point of time in their history but that's not the point the most robust mechanism of preaching ahimsa has come from this land so that could have been another concept that was uh, there and another thing that i found unique in india is that while there is some sort of a, a ishwar or a supernatural deity there is there is no history centrism which is another very unique concept there but when we try to so here's the problem harsh when somebody tries to have this kind of a discussion with someone and they say 5 minute mein video bana ke batao hinduism kya hai this is where we lose as a bunch of people against the christian because let me tell you you can make a 5 minute video and easily explain christianity and islam i am uh, i can do that but i cannot do that with hinduism so how do we work around that definitional problem so i first of all i don't think that's where we lose i think that's where we lost historically i think the fact that if you can summarize uh, my life's philosophy my wonder with the universe my wonder with consciousness uh, consciousness in 5 minutes then i'm not sure i want to follow that path right i mean like if if it's really something that i can learn in grade 7 uh does that really satisfy my wonder when i look at the stars i i like what do, when i think about life and death when i think about loved ones relatives and ancestors who are no longer alive i don't think it does so i you know i i think that's actually in our working favor right in a, in in a in a more brutal world in a world where people were not climbing up maslow's pyramids this is all linked to material realities as well uh, yes maybe clear directions were useful and actually i have an interesting philosophy that i'll come to it in a in a minute uh, yeah so i see first of all i think yes i think the concept of ahimsa this concept of uh, anekantvad this concept of mutual reality um, uh, mutual respect this concept of not being history centric or not being teleological um they are all linked basically right basically what we are trying to say is there are no e- exclusive this only is truth there is no exclusive truth claims that's basically what it is and as you and i have discussed offline as well anekantvad does not mean that there is no truth it simply or does not it simply means that i as a imperfect human being uh, no matter how learned how experienced how wise can only see some aspects of the truth uh, so so harsh and pushil will always see things a bit differently uh, that does not mean there are two realities necessarily it simply means that there is one 
very difficult to grasp reality for any human being and we see different aspects of it uh, so it's not relativism is my is my point like some people might say acha ye bhi hai wo bhi theek hai to that's you know that's relativism no and i think uh, you know one of my friends guides mentor sanjeev sanyal who is the principal economic advisor ministry of finance like i think he somebody else might have said before it him, uh, before him but at least i heard it from him he called and a lot of people would make fun of this on social media because they think it's just too casual perhaps like you know but i think it's it gets a certain reality it's like you know dharma is like the operating system and uh, different punts are like different apps on the operating system but if one app starts attacking other apps then the operating system should not accept that app it's like the operating system is again the bare minimum any good operating system at least unless they start their own activism uh, any 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 good lasting uh, everlasting operating system in tune with reality another meaning of dharma and dandrata right should actually keep except all apps that do not kill other apps that do not try to kill or conquer or homogenize all apps right? i mean in my book on your idea of india with rajiv my friend uh, who's the co-author we wrote that dharma is the original small m multiculturalism right so it's, it, it it is the whole idea of non homogenizing universalism and and the reason why this is so important is you know the word sanatana dharma is often used right like some people call dharma some people say hinduism some people say sanatan dharma interestingly 100 years ago the word sanatan dharma or sanatanis had a context of people who were uh, defending a certain interpretation of the varnashram uh, which was by birth i don't think it is by birth or my again i'm not a scholar but my limited reading of uh rigveda or bhagavad gita the the early shrutis does not seem to show that it was by birth it simply shows that some people based on their guna and karma are divided into different stations in their lives that doesn't necessarily apply to their sons and daughters so so in a way i think the word sanatan dharma 100 years ago in that context was wrongly used sanatan dharma by definition has to be like a bare minimum definition the lcd the good op- operating system time context ideas whether you agree with them or not or what we call yuga dharma like the yuga dharma for a certain time when india was being invaded right left and center and actually in, in that particular context a certain sense of um, you know endogamy over exogamy the working definition of the the caste system or varna by birth or various jatis being coalesced into different uh, varnas even though there would be some social mobility of of the jatis within the varna system and not the varnas itself uh, maybe that was good at some point in terms of defending uh, the civilization net net there are obviously many many drawbacks uh, so that could be as part of a yuga dharma but it could not be part of the sanatan dharma sanatan dharma by definition has to be more minimalistic than the time context specific yuga dharmas so so again we have to go to something which is really really uh, very very minimalistic for the definitions and anekantvad and uh, is is what is anekantvad comes from the jain concept right you know shadavad in hinduism is like there are many ends anekant uske bare mein baat kari right so the, so uh, of course the famous uh, metaphor there is like a lot of blind men uh, trying to touch an elephant it was then converted into a poem by an englishman and somebody is touching the trunk somebody is touching the tail somebody is touching the elephant's stomach somebody is touching the elephant's ear somebody is touching the tusks um and the and all of them are saying well this is this this is a wall this is a this is a stick this is something else and the the idea is those blind men are actually us we are seeing different aspects of the reality 
and uh, so long as those men are not telling each other that you're going to die in hell and burn forever after dying you're going to hell and burn forever simply because your interpretation of this thing the reality that you're touching is very different from mine i think we are all good i think that see the point is in modern day political philosophy all of us are so uh so obsessed with with liberty and equality and now identity politics will come to in a moment that we forgot the third leg the third leg is fraternity right if you if you if you read modern western political philosophy in the 20th century if you read john rawls if you read robert nozick forget the communist and the, the structuralist and the continental philosophers just with even within the anglo american tradition if you look at the so called classical liberal or libertarian tradition versus the kind of more welfareist more egalitarian equal opportunity if not equal results kind of tradition they're all basically debating on this xy axis of liberty and equality they're forgetting that the world is three dimensional right there's the z axis is fraternity you don't create a political unit without there being fraternity between the people fraternity need not mean homogeneity but there there needs to be fraternity and if there is a certain way of looking at the world which by definition divides us uh does that lead to fraternity and therefore the viability of the said political unit right and so again there it's important to understand that a lot of these early pagan shamanistic polytheist pantheist ideas had no sense of self partially because to some extent they didn't have a sense of self because they didn't have a self sense of the other like for example the the the, the kind of arunachal pradesh traditional religions they kind of defined it in the 1960s donio polo this they came up with a term in the 1960s because they said we don't want to become christians but we also don't want to be absorbed into mainstream hinduism um they, they were especially worried about christianity and they said we don't have a term for ourselves so when you know when 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 because earlier no pastor would come and say this is the reality and your reality is not true and so now we have no answer so there there needs to be some organization so the one kind of one attempt of that within india is not we now call hindutva but because these two uh, uh, kind of brahmic proselytizing religions with their internal schisms they were actually proto nation states they were the first ways of organizing something beyond an empire like they were the first universalisms but they were homogenizing universalisms so the nation state which comes in, you know in 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 europe first uh, after the protestant revolution vienna and all that is 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 so the nation state and secularism coming together it makes made a lot of sense because it took away the power of organized religion and that is why any strong nation state will always be fundamentally antithetical to classical islam and christianity even the state of pakistan has to be fundamentally antithetical in a deeper sense to a classical understanding of islam i mean again this is sounds like a bit of a controversial statement and i'm deliberately using an extreme test case like iqbal famously said right in in sare naye kind of butomen and these new gods the biggest god the shiniest god is nationalism and he i think he understood that rightly because nation state replaces an organizing the the principle of organization which is why you can no longer say legitimately say i'm not so concerned about my fellow citizen in karnataka india but i'm concerned about what's happening to people in palestine in ottoman turkey and so on and so forth so in the the very nature of this nation state which might be a civilizational state in the case of india 
might be more of an ethno-linguistic nation state in Europe, now turning into a civilization state in the European Union. The very nature of these states have to go against these two proselytizing Abrahamic religions. That does not mean internally, that does not mean that they cannot try to send out the preachers outside, right? You know, in, like internally, these Western states could be secular, but they can tell the preachers, go to Africa, go to Sub-Saharan Sub Africa, go to South Korea, go to poor parts of India. I'm not, I'm not at all minimizing the threat. I'm simply saying the very nature of a modern nation state is against because a modern nation state has to presuppose some internal fraternity. Uh, and we, we kind of we did not debate that much in the 20th century. We were too much focused on liberty and equality. And India is the best test case. It's so massively diverse, so huge uh, universal adult franchise in a poor country. 20% of its population is Abrahamic, give or take. Whether all of them believe it in a classical sense or they have a heterodox interpretation. And we are seeing strains of that. And we are, we are all basically kind of uh, trying to grope in the dark how to come out of this in some humanitarian way. Some humane way. So I think I think that's that's that. So the very concept of uh, those religions, uh, which are the two proselytizing primary religions, and in in that sense, the nation state is the friend of dharma, of dharma itself. The nation state is friend of these micro, less organized pagan religions, who didn't even necessarily have self consciousness, because uh, nation states sooner or later are being forced to provide an environment in which such kind of imperialism, at least domestically, not necessarily foreign policy, once again. So, you know, domestically, not foreign policy wise. So Nigeria is different from Europe right now. But domestically, they're being forced to provide an environment uh, where a local indigenous historically or ahistorical tradition is revived, uh, be it in Africa, be it in Europe. So it's, it's very interesting how uh, the political utility of the two Abrahamic religions having been diminished by the nation state and the world is basically kind of dealing with the legacy of that. But it's too soon because, you know, most of Sub-Saharan Africa became Christian only in the 20th century. So it's too soon to like declare a victory or anything. We have to be very, very vigilant. Uh, but I think this is something important to understand. The nation state intrinsically goes against these two proselytizing faiths. All right, then in, in such a scenario, you didn't mention Hindutva in this, but uh, Hindutva becomes a very important factor. And that's what's going to be the meat of our discussion now. Uh, where does Hindutva fit into all of this? Now, here's the problem. Whenever we have discussions with anybody, whether it's inside India or outside India, there seems to be there is no working definition of Hindutva too. Again, Hindutva seems to be by and large for the, again to use the lowest common denominator definition seems to be organized Hinduism that stands up and asserts itself against uh, proselytizing Christianity and militant Islamism. That's what uh, comes down to. But if you ask me, I think that is a very unfair def definition for Hindutva. If my personal view, I think Hindutva is a lot more than that. I think Hindutva to me, and I'll share my views first, and then I would like to hear what uh, you think about it uh, and your views too. But for me, Hindutva is the first time where in a modern, you know, Westphalian, you know, democratic order, the Hindus have finally figured out a way of being politically relevant. And the problem seems to be in the eye of the other side and how they look at Hindutva more than how Hindus look at Hindutva themselves. Hindus are very comfortable with Hindutva because for them, Hindutva is 
when we talk politically and then we go back to our own hinduness and our own thing but for them hindutva is very important because it gives them the final answer in a democratic setup where in the first past the vote system they have realized that if we kind of organize in this way it seems to be a good countervailing balance to the two proselytizing faiths or to the two i would say the three proselytizing faiths in india which is uh, marxism christianity and islamism so uh, because i think marxism is as proselytizing as anything else i don't know why people don't like it but i mean i have always found them to be abrahamism without the god so in such a scenario hindutva is a lot more than just that hindutva is uh, also a anchor and people don't realize the value of the of an anchor in organized you use the word fraternity i think that's a very important point because fraternity is what post agricultural societies are all about yeah a religion is a result of that organized religion is a result of you know agriculture post agricultural societies and people coming together they needed some story to bind them together with and religion perfectly fit into that now in this modern day and age where you are going to live with uh, you know in nation states nation states are a reality so how do we go about explaining hindutva to people then harsh so i think i think another excellent question also very open ended as it must be um first of all i agree with you that kind of marxism is the fourth abrahamic religion or the third proselytizing abrahamic religion uh, uh you know wokeism and climate change are kind of new descendants of the same phenomenon um of the kind of mosaic distinction as you know yan asman has written about um yeah except of course it's the religion it's an abrahamic religion without a god and also without genetic genetic inheritance of said identity uh, you know like i mean of course in a free modern nation state increasingly we are seeing the children of christians and muslims being ex christians and ex muslims um but at least there is some kind of traditional expectation of that not being the case and even if you're heterodox to you kind of define yourself within that framework uh the, the 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 kind of relatively less dangerous part of marxism compared to these other two proselytizing aspects uh which which i must say again in the spirit of anekantvad cannot all have cannot be cannot have been all negative if it has actually been on planet earth for millennia there must have served some purpose and we should be humble enough epistemologically to kind of think why it survived for so long and not just force um so so i think yeah of course so marxism kind of dies off and therefore we are already seeing the death of marxism to some extent its newer versions are here um i think uh, on the broader point of hindutva i think again something we have discussed offline as well um the word hindu itself as i mentioned right is something that i would go from dharma to indic to the various puns themselves uh, theoretically i would kind of just skip the word hindu it's not there in any of our traditional texts right it comes from the word indus or the sindhu nadi um it it was a geographical definition then it became a negative definition and uh, because because hindutva comes from that i mean to some not a, not a very fair comparison but to me in the word hindu to to that limited extent is is an assertive reaction to yes i am a hindu so what like yes i am a proud hindu like it's it's you know like how african americans may or may not like the n word but in front of outsiders to assert a certain identity they say yes they deliberately use that word which increasingly others cannot for for good reason um so it's more of a self definition for the outsider when you want to be assertive about it because that is the term or the terminology based on which he or she is disliking you or not respecting your existence 
Um, so for me, Hindu, so it, it's kind of kind of appropriate that the political assertion aspect of Hinduism is now called Hindutva and to that extent, right? Um, but of course, it has issues, as you rightly pointed out, like you know, on the uh, in the West, in the post-Westphalian kind of context, you basically are echoing the point which I just mentioned before, right? That the modern nation-state uh, helps organize uh, those kind of philosophies that were historically not organized and is not hospitable to those two philosophies that have been relatively well organized. So the modern nation state is been, has been a boon to Hinduism in that sense. And the best person to read on this is Girilal Jain, uh, the Hindu phenomenon, a book that is probably available free online in a PDF format, but if possible, please buy it. Um, and in, in, if you, in that larger spirit, because you know there are various Zionisms, right? There's liberal Zionism, there is ultra-nationalist Zionism, there's conservative Zionism, there are all kinds of Zionisms. In that broader context of Hindutva, India is a Hindutva state, and it became one on 1940, in 1947. It became one on 15th August 1947, with the biggest Hindutva Vadi in that sense being Jawaharlal Nehru. Like Jawaharlal Nehru comes around and says that this cabinet mission plan is nonsense, it's not going to happen. On that basis, Jinnah finally says, fine, you know, we are going the we are not having this kind of cabinet mission plan of three groups of provinces, uh, two Muslim majority in the West and East, the rest being Hindu, and then kind of have equal powers in the central federal parliament. And Nehru says this is not workable. If you want a modern economy, then it's just not going to work out. We need some centralization at the you know, the center cannot live uh, based on the generosity of the provinces sending some taxes. No, the taxes have to go to the center and then. If some can go directly to the provinces, it can be devolved. So Nehru basically says, with the British out and Muslim majority areas more or less gone, and we can discuss about Kashmir separately. Uh, to that extent, it was the first time, perhaps ever, but definitely first time in a thousand years that you have such a large uh, Dharmic Indic population being politically organized into one coherent unit. And that the coherence of the unit has been consistently increasing decade after decade. Uh, Nehru was a modernizer, Modi was a modernizer. Uh, Nehru's difference was that he wanted uh, the 10% Muslim vote at that time on his side. And therefore he would kind of say there is a, there is a, there is a bad right-wing Hindu to my right to prevent that come, come on my side. And uh, Modi's uh, tactic right now is he's saying, okay, you know, uh, we can ignore the 15% right now in terms of electoral politics. But basically in terms of modernization of the economy, in terms of modernization of the religion itself uh, there has been no significant change the rss remains socially reformist much to the chagrin of some so-called trads online um, and modi is very much a product of that look at the way he talks about menstruation from red fort right so so in in that sense it was a hindu state because this hindu state said you know while i'm in favor of temples being privatized again denationalized i've been writing that for 10 years but in 1940s and 50s to nationalize or partially nationalize some temples and say, you know, if required, Dalits can also be Pujaris here, uh, was a breathtaking change. Or the first thing is Dalits can first enter, forget Pujaris. The next step is they can also be Pujaris. So, so the Indian state became the organizing arm of Hinduism. So when the Indian state itself becomes the organizing arm of Hinduism, and about, about, about secular liberals, Indian Hindu secular liberals, Girilal Jain says that, you know, Kashmir was their kind of proxy Hindutva. He says Kashmir was where all their, he indirectly says all their 
sublimated subconscious hindutva or anti islamism would come out in the context of kashmir i mean whether you agree or not agree with this kind of pop psychological analysis i'm saying uh, from from an outsider's point of view uh, from a pakistani point of view there's really not much difference between a gandhi and a nehru and now modi and vajpayee they seem more like a continuum uh, if you read perry anderson uh, perry anderson says that the indian ideology has always been kind of hindu imperialistic ideology like he famously said that where uh, wherever the hindu majority stops aspa begins at some point or the other and again empirically he has been right not always but sometime or the other so like so the, so to def, to define hindutva in a domestic political context as you can say so called right wing so called left wing but in the broader hindu organizing sense it has been the organizing principle of the indian state it has been the organizing principle of the very definition and demarcation of the indian state uh whiles would you know the two bengals mean two different states and two punjabs mean two different states but jammu and tamil nadu are extremely happy together in a narrow sense you can agree or disagree with aspects actually around around 10 years ago i wrote an article the case against hindutva where i argued against conflation of india and hinduism yeah yeah i remember that and actually i i agree with a lot of what i mentioned here because a lot of things i mentioned here i wrote there but i said let's not conflate that my broader point was let's again go with the word dharma what about sikhs what about jains what about buddhists um so you know so it's it's kind of like dharma is the defining principle of the indian nation state even though dharma is bigger as aurobindo ghosh also mentioned dharma is universal indian nation state is by definition not universal uh and one subset of dharma is what we colloquially call hinduism and it would be better if we don't have to have this conversation if this is a bipartisan consensus but unfortunately every generation we have to kind of go back to the basics uh and that's fine because of that we get some moral clarity so i i see i hinduism is as you think as you very kind of def- defined yes hindus being assertive or organized in the face of two kind of imperial uh, proselytizing religious ideologies that are also political ideologies i think that's that's a fine definition it's it's not a very it's it's more of a negative de- definition it's not a proactive definition i think abhinav prakash singh who's our common friend gives a gives a more of a proactive twist when he says again it's hindutva's modernist hindutva is the ideology which has actually brought in the so called lower castes into the mainstream even if for electoral reasons because for if you're the opposition to hindutva in a literal sense you want to keep hindu society divided uh on caste just that's just how your mathematics works out no matter what your personal beliefs uh whereas uh, on this side you actually want uh a slow coagulation of this broader society this broader umbrella again which need not mean homogenization uh so in in that broader sense uh, the fact that the indian state gives money uh for the marriage between a dalit hindu and a non dalit hindu so called upper caste hindu the indian state gives money for that what could be more hindutva than that right i mean that's literally the unification of hindus um i mean because see the so called i mean we can go to varna so called dalit uh dalit is a 20th century word there were earlier different words but there were the keho in france the, the burkamen in kind of japan there have been this is partially a religious problem i'm not saying it's a colonial creation at all but it's it's also feudal economic agricultural phenomenon in a modern industrial nation urbanizing nation uh especially where women are also 
free and independent and have their own autonomy it would be very strange not to have intermarriage at some point it would be very strange for people not to choose, choose their own professions uh, the only difference is because france and japan kind of modernized earlier so you know there these uh, these uh, communities which are always in the margins of mainstream society for generations for centuries got absorbed in this massive industrial revolution and by the time india wrote its constitution we didn't write a classical liberal constitution well at least we did but in the first amendment itself we kind of said okay we need to have reservations nehru's first amendment we need to have reasonable restrictions on private property and free speech agree or disagree so we kind of went down the identitarian path and i think again we are having a conversation separately that we, our views on this have evolved right you know maybe the indian state giving reservations given the reality of our economic policies and all that was one of the best things they did in terms of integrating uh, we kind of anticipated the woke ideologies of the world so to speak and uh, we said we were wrong we as so called upper castes were wrong there needs to be some broadly speaking reparations of affirmative action of course in principle that has to be time bound it's not carte blanche for eternity but we were wrong we accept the mistake that these are the these are some quote unquote reparations we are making much more much before it became fashionable to talk about this in the context of african americans in the us where of course the historical legacy is much more violent um you know like i like i i often say african americans should never be compared to indian muslims to indian dalits it still makes sense but even there it's not a one to one comparison right i mean uh, so i'm not at all saying that the the kind of oppression was comparable but at least we actually went out of the way and made this structure earlier uh, and and when our economy and society is ready enough to get beyond this finally i think that's where a lot of interesting uh, uh, kind of phenomenon open up because if you cannot if the hindu state is a ref, the indian state is a hindu state it's a hindu reformist state and because the hindu reformist state uh with all the kind of bureaucracy and corruption and all that and all the wrong incentives as well for it you know like it it will get ucc done it will probably reform rte uh temples also it must denationalize but maybe temple denationalization will happen towards the end of this troika of next reforms and why is that relevant because until you get the state out of religion you cannot have religious experimentation right because there is kind of bureaucracy on top of it and therefore the sikhs can say or maybe the lingayats can say in the future that okay you know if i don't want to or the brahmos can say in bengal if i don't want the state interfering in my religion this minority exemption helps me and therefore legally i do not want to be defined as a hindu no matter what other emotional reasons so you can see the tension there right the state has to reform hinduism kind of uh, to make sure that there are no discriminatory practices which may or may not be fundamentally hindu which may just be feudal legacies but while it is doing that some kind of uh, centrally uh, kind of centrifugal tendencies will remain from that definition because you're putting an additional regulatory burden so once you kind of reach a point where you do not need this state intervention that is where i think our way of thinking about a broader definition of dharma will become more uh, relevant all right so again so what we take out from this is uh, hindutva definitely is beyond just a political answer to proselytizing christianity and violent islamism 
Hindutva is also in a very positive way Hinduism that's getting organized and is talking back to the world, not just to uh, to to Abrahamic communities in India, but to the world. I use this word with full word with full responsibility. Uh, Hindutva is also in a modern sense. And I agree with, with uh, uh, and it's good you mentioned Abhinav here because I think Abhinav is spot on when he says Hindutva is nothing if it is not a subaltern movement. Let's just be very clear. There can be no mass movement in India without the lower caste, so-called lower caste, I believe uh, in the annihilation of Jati Varna. So, I mean, I'm very clear. I've done a monologue on it. So, I mean, this, which is why my brain does not think in a caste way. But I'm just saying that there can be no Hindutva without lower caste. So, also, Abhinav is right when he says that it is the only progressive movement inside the Hindu society that is actively working in a positive way, not in a negative way, which in a, which is the way the left tries to, wear, you know, the left wing way is the classical way that your religion is shit. I will throw the baby out with the bathwater. Hindutva says, okay, this society has this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem. Okay. In modern reality, current scientific evidence, I think these things make no sense. Let's get a, get rid of these things and move forward. So yes, so Hindutva is progressive too. But there are still many elements. And you know what? Somebody in the live chat has asked this very good question. And I will actually take it right away. So he has basically said uh, that, you know, folks like you, Harsh, myself, Abhijit, Ranga, we are all neoliberal, libertarian kind of people. You know, we are all talking about, oh, we should be open-minded. We should have free speech. We should have this. We should have that. And we are trying to take over Dharma, Hindutva, Hinduism with our neoliberal uh, ideas. We are just Westerners who are imposing this. So to that kind of a scenario, Harsh, because it's a very important part and it is a subset of the discussion that we are having. So how do we answer to that kind of a query? Well, I think... Uh... The, we can anybody can make any allegation, uh, but somebody will have to. Uh, so yeah, so I think anybody can make any allegation, uh, Kushal, but we'll have to substantiate that, right? See, or this idea that you're just kind of oh, quote unquote liberal uh, Western modernizers who just want to kind of appropriate terminology, but you don't actually bring any. Uh, intrinsically dharmic framework you're actually copying pasting the western framework and giving it an indian name right that's the that's a broad allegation so my question to that is uh, one way to answer that is to respond to some some remarks you just mentioned i actually don't i'm not against varnashram i am against varna by birth right? like, so what ambedkar said that uh, division of labor is what makes an economy rich the classic adam smithian concept not division of laborers so there is nothing wrong with if people are born without any varna and they grow up to have certain varnas, which they actually, in, given the increasing lifespan, average lifespan, they might even change it in their lifespan. So I, why should somebody like you and I go against varnashram? Um, there could be four or more varnas. And I mean, because again, if you read uh, the, the, at least I have not found, so I have actually said it a few times on, on, on Twitter. Uh, I've asked a few people. I have not found anybody who says, well, look, this is where it says in the Rig way that Varna is by birth. I've not found it anywhere. Having it in Smritis is different from Shrutis, right? I've not found it anywhere. So 
if so there's nothing wrong with uh, having varnas uh, so long as it's not by birth uh, similarly if you can say uh, on sabrimala sabrimala i took a position that actually that particular temple should not be forced to open its gates to uh, women of a certain age assumed to be menstruating women uh, because that is the very point of that temple it was not a broader point that is the that that particular instantiation of lord ayappa has that particular uh, it's in that particular stage of life in in that for the deity that it makes sense not to open that is the whole tradition that's a point of it's intrinsic to that particular temple as opposed to broader temples some people say well how will you then say that well women should be allowed into masjids well if there is a particular reason in one particular masjid i could agree with that how do you say that all all masjids should not be allowed right so so people try to say well you are trying to make a point here but you don't it's not consistent so i am not at all making a broader western point again on free speech i always say the state capacity uh, but whether you want to give an indian example you want to give a karl popper example uh, nothing is absolute i want to see maximum free speech as possible uh, but i am okay with curbing free speech uh, in a in a in a civil war zone if that means that area could secede from india um but more more broadly uh, you know the when this is a western point of view like where did western philosophy come from we need to answer this question uh western philosophy or so first there was renaissance then there was reformation then there was enlightenment right um renaissance actually went back to greco roman arts it is more of a like where you finally where art finally left the christian context to some extent and you could go back to uh greek and roman kind of you could you could have a statue of david for example michelangelo or somebody else could make one right um then you have reformation you have you have you have the northern europe germany just fully converted to christianity and then they said why do we suddenly have to go to rome and just like iran separated from sunni islam um in the 1500s uh germany separated and then you have enlightenment where you increase it through baruch spinoza and other people you increasingly start questioning judeo christian orthodoxies um and you are increasingly uh, there's an aristotelian com- component to it uh, the the some of the greek philosophers were very much influenced by quote unquote gymnosophists only men from india uh who they said would would just you know alexander the famous anecdote alexander asking them questions and they just didn't give a flying f and the series of very interesting questions so and there are influences of buddhism on greece and vice versa and we have the indo greek cushions uh, in 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 india on one side of the coin you have krishna on the other side of the coin you have heraclitus a greek god um so so i don't even understand like on what basis are we saying that individual moksha because uh, which is what corresponds to individual rights and duties in a political context individual moksha in a social spiritual context is somehow intrinsically a western idea uh where just you know few centuries ago women were being burnt on the stake uh for being not christian enough uh so there we had theological hierarchies in india we had sociological hierarchies of of uh, caste and jati and some women being burnt for sati uh some doing it voluntarily but many being forced so the problem was not theological in india it was social in india but indian theology has always been individual centric the, the the ritual and the praxi part of it might be kind of very if you do when you doing in a communitarian sense of course you have to be of a certain caste background and this and that uh, but in the same family if you have somebody who is a follower of krishna 
somebody else is a shavite he's only a massive worshiper of mahadev uh, how is that if that is not individualism what is individualism in how many western families like 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 hardcore protestant could you find a catholic now it's become common in america for families to mix and match and somebody said i've just joined this church and i've married a jewish girl and i've converted to judaism and i'm taking this course and so on and so that that's completely new in the west uh, so on what whereas in the same family like have an ishta devta having a kul devta having a personal god a family god a village god they were all separate ideas uh, and then of course beyond all these gods is the brahman so if i am giving these ideas where hinduism is the one unlike christianity we're saying what you believe is not my issue so long as you're doing so long as your ideas are not saying that my ideas are wrong and will take me to hell this is not a western idea this is a hindu idea so if i am uh, building uh, if me and others whether we fully agree or not i'm building a political structure on top of that spiritual philosophy i don't see how that is being western because the problem in india was we had to rediscover the arthashastra because we were colonized we did not have a theory of the state which was in living memory we had a lot of princely rajas and all that we did not have uh, you know like a vikramaditya we didn't have somebody who, we didn't have an indian empire at least in north india for a long time so, so let me ask a, so let me come here so let me ask you this question because it's very important then in that kind of a scenario what does hindutva conserve then i think hindutva is conserving space and not just conserving making and growing space for hindu dharmic indic ideas to grow to first survive and then thrive so it it is it is it is the mind sweeper it is it is creating ground and defending ground for hinduism to flourish which is why you often see that as you know while on this broader definition of hindutva there's massive consensus as soon as debates online or offline start going towards what is right and what is wrong to internally define specifics of hinduism you start seeing debates which is why it is not a coincidence that the term hindutva even though it was earlier coined by somebody in bengal but it's popularized by savarkar uh he ne- never got into the theological intricacies he didn't say that this is vishishta dvaita and only vedanta makes sense and you know madhavacharya was right and ramanujam was like he didn't get into those aspects like he didn't get into even beyond a point he didn't get into even your dietary habits he didn't get into uh, whether you should be an atheist or theist so this is the way you should worship or you should worship five times a day and you should look in that direction or that no he didn't get into those it was up it is a political tract of organizing people so that their beliefs can be preserved modified so long as they're internally consistent with each other so long as they're not attacking each other so again it was laying out that super it was it was preserving that operating system not trying to define the apps uh, so if we if we are trying to create an eco, trying to create an environment in which those puns can all not just survive but flourish uh, i am honestly trying to i'm failing to understand how is that a western kind of conspiracy or a western idea being put in i think what some people have in mind is uh, Well, by the way the person who asked this question is uh, is an atheist not a track no, no i it, it could it could be a devil's advocate question i'm not saying it is any since you anyways not naming or di- discussing the person the point mm-hmm. is whether it is sincerely asked a rhetorical question or it's just a devil's advocate question the question is real and i'm thankful to him or her for asking it so the, then the point i'm i'm myself trying to kind of think out loud and asking you kushal also because you probably at uh, the receiving end of more such allegations than even me 
is uh, like how is this a western conspiracy i'm trying to understand like if you're saying that uh, i want a world where at least there is state capacity uh, all religions can be criticized because i feel in that battle of ideas so long as there is state capacity i actually feel our ideas will win uh so one response to that can be well there will never be a state capacity that i understand okay then don't defend free speech i understand that i may not be as pessimistic as you are about future state capacity and therefore the possibility of defending free speech equitably but i can understand that response but some people say no no even if we could defend free speech just the idea of blasphemy or excommunication or heretics or kafir or pagan these ideas should come to our terminology and i think that's where i disagree because i think that will harm dharma itself because we are we are right now not discussing that this is my favorite version of sun god and this is my understanding of the moon god and you are a surya vanshi and i am a chandra we are not discussing that we are saying all beliefs are personal family based they can change we can discuss that separately this is not the forum to do that but how do we create a space where all those beliefs can be properly um, followed uh, and they can try to convince each other through purva paksha through debate um, you know like uh, like uh, advait vedant scholar meeting a buddhist and saying this is our understanding of the soul uh, are you convinced why don't you join my panth if i am not convinced i'll join your panth that's perfectly fine you and i are not taking a part in that debate right you and i are taking part in a debate to create environment for that debate to take place so i'll tell you what so one of the things that question was trying to raise is that if you kind of stand up for so let me just put it out there so if you stand up for gay rights ultra feminism trans rights i don't know what that degeneracy is i don't know what the hell that is but i believe uh, wokeism is a degeneracy that's fine but uh, i don't know what homosexuality how can that be a degeneracy i don't know how that can I'll, I'll, be... answer, i'll answer that question first of all there's a lot of nuance here i actually support quote unquote i i support individual rights i don't support mm-hmm. separately gay rights i think gay rights are part of individual rights for mm-hmm. example recently this, uh, when the government when the supreme court uh, heard a petition from one of our friends um to have homosexual marriage um under the hindu marriage act or some other act i actually opposed it i did not support homosexual marriage in that case i said it is the this to remove 377 which is an which is a present and active danger of exploitation of extortion against anybody who is a homosexual in india by the court is one thing and then to give the status of marriage by the court and not by the parliament is another thing so i do not support the judiciary in india suddenly coming and saying either under the special marriage act or definitely under the hindu marriage act because if you do it in the hindu marriage act you're not even giving it to other religions special marriage act at least theoretically you're keeping it open to all religions um i i didn't support that because i think if you look at barack obama when he became president early on he was opposed to gay marriage by the way he had an evolution after that and in the west in many countries they went through this in stages for example they had uh, what 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 is the intermediary stage before marriage is like a special relationship what do they call that uh, what is the legal term uh, so there is something civil union a civil union so you have a gay relationship which can be can get legal recognition of being a quote unquote civil union i am in support of civil unions again through the parliament to get same kind of uh, tax benefits that a heterosexual couple will get for any possible being partners 
but not for having a child, but just for the benefit of being a couple. If there are any tax benefits in any jurisdiction, I am fine with giving a homosexual civil union the same benefits. I'm just the term marriage. I agree is a social term, and it should be given through the popularly elected representatives of India. Now, if that debate happens, I would stand up and say there is no harm in using that term. But that I could win that debate. I could lose that debate. I don't think it's as important as first and foremost removing 377 or reading down 377 because that was clear and present danger, exploitative and extortionate uh, for people just being themselves. Uh, so I I I, I fail to understand how is this supporting degeneracy because if some people are in love or they have lust or whatever they're doing in their own bedroom, they're not harming me or my family or my friends. On my community in any way. Yeah, some people say, yeah, we don't want the gay pride, uh, you know, parades. Well, fine. We, I, I don't want to see Sharia parades also in India. They're happening, right? But how does it matter? You don't want to see something. Fine. If some people, if they're peacefully doing something after taking the requisite permissions in a park or on part of a street where they're moving, how does it matter? So, I mean, I think. It is different to discuss society and state. We are saying what should be criminalized and not criminalized. For example, I'm I'm in favor of uh, I don't know like uh, not criminalizing vodka. I don't drink vodka, for example. I, I might socially drink once in two years. Once I'm like I'm, many friends have to like force me to drink. Maybe I'll drink once in like three years. I mean, so I'm not in favor of drink, but I'm not in favor of banning it. I think Gujarat should decriminalize alcohol. I think Kejriwal did a good step by removing the age from 25 to 21 today. Because mm. people in Delhi who could afford it were anyways legally, uh, were in illegally drinking alcohol. Uh, whether they were drinking cheap beer or like in pubs and bars where people are not enforcing the age limit. Uh, we know what happened in prohibition. We know what is happening with all the gundas in Gujarat. Some, some of the people who funded riots in Gujarat actually made their money through alcohol, uh, like uh, smuggling of alcohol. Bootlegging. Uh, so, so I, I don't think having a view on what the state should criminalize or not criminalize is the same as, um, is the same as is kind of endorsing any practice. So, I mean, once again, I'm trying to understand what is degeneracy, just like you mentioned, uh, Pushal. I don't know. If we read on aspects of 377. I don't know. All I know is the first uh, atheist is concerned with degeneracy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, no, let's. No, I mean, no, no, once again, I, mean, I, I I must stop you there for a moment because there is a very interesting book uh, written by David Brooks. Um, I think 10, 15 years ago called Bobos and Paradox. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was about the bourgeois bohemian. And his broad thesis to put very quickly was a lot of people who use the word woke was not used then, who use a lot of this kind of ultra liberal language, upper middle class American wasps and other people in Boston, etc actually themselves personally led very conservative lives mm-hmm. and the and the and the and the and the accusation was they are kind of creating this hip hop culture for already poor african americans to remain poor or at least they don't mind them remaining poor and becoming single parents and so on so so i'm not in favor of single parenthood if it can be avoided um i'm not i'm just not i'm not saying that it should be criminalized i think if you are a single parent uh, if you can avoid it great You'll probably have a great child if you want to, but on average, reports in America say, for example, if you're a single parent, your child is less likely to be academically or professionally successful. So, of course, if possible, public policy can help avoid single parenthood to some extent. Let us do that. So, 
I'm, I'm not again. I'm not calling it degeneracy, but I'm saying you can have certain preferences, uh, not just a society level, but on a very moderate social engineering. What is known as a nudge principle, right? A libertarian paternalism. You can have that, but uh, that does not mean that you say, okay, if somebody is a single parent, you're going to stone them to death, uh, or you're going to jail them. So, so you can actually have personally conservative or relatively conservative values, small c conservative values, and have a different set of standards for what should be criminalized and not criminalized. So I'll tell you, here's the thing. What most people don't realize is that there are two templates you can live with. There is an open plural template and then there is a, a closed template. What most people who come from a closed template mindset, I don't want to use the word narrow-minded. I don't want to use the word conservative. I don't want to use any of those words. I call it people with a closed template mindset. I call it with an open template mindset. Uh, the mindset of an open template has space for the closed template and the open template. The mindset of the closed template has no space for the open template. Surely, by that logic, the open template is superior to the closed template. I think the argument ends there. It's very simple. This is, by the way, sounding a lot like uh, Dharma and Abrahamic religions, by the way. Yeah. So I'm then, giving it a Popperian analysis, but my point is if it's, a dharma, it's sounding the open mindset is sounding like Dharma and the closed mindset is sounding like proselytizing Abrahamism, then the point is the accusation should be reversed. Anybody who is defending in total Victorian mentality or mentalities that we have inculcated because of long colonial Turkic rule, they are the ones who are actually colonized by people from our West, so to speak. Um, and people who are actually talking the way I am talking right now, you can say that is actually part of decolonization. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't want to be kind of clever or cute here. My point is, I could easily reverse the accusation. I'm not interested in doing so because I'm not interested in making accusations here. You're having a discussion. But to say this of a degeneracy, of the degeneracy, even if it happened in earlier parts in uh, Hindu society, they would say, okay, fine. They might look down on somebody. That's fine. In very yeah. few, in very few cases, they would say, okay, now we are going to stone you. Um, I, I'm not saying that violence never happened. Like we have Khapanchayats in our present day. Uh, in our 21st century, but the general idea was, uh, if you can just get the if you can just get the person to maybe at worst leave the village, right? There, there was that sense of okay, you could start your life afresh somewhere. Not ideal, but as you were mentioning, ahimsa is a, at a broader level. The idea was at best social boycott, not theological excommunication, but social boycott. Um, and we are even changing that now, but that was also never the same as you are degenerate and now uh, you should get. Uh, physical punishment. Uh, I agree with you. So the next question is very interesting because it's uh, from the Popperian lens again. So uh, because you had mentioned that, you know, around 20% of the population are people who follow the Abrahamic religions in India. So nominally, when do we, nominally. Yeah, nominally. I mean, we don't know approximately how many are there in yeah. reality because Indian, you know, census reports are genius anyways. But so they say, do we at some point, uh, the Hindutva state, it's an important question. Now, it might trigger a few people, but these are the kinds of questions we need to engage with, right? So do we at some point curtail the rights of religious propagation considering the pauper's paradox? Yes, yeah, so I think it's an open... I don't think there's one right or wrong answer. I think uh, I think the, the questioner is referring to and what we have referred to as Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance. And he mm -hmm. kind of referred to it in his two-volume book called The Open Society and Its Enemies. 
and uh, the three kind of philosophers he criticized in those two volumes were he uh, first plato then hegel and then marx and he kind of basically criticizes all of them especially hegel and marx for as we were mentioning history centrism or for being teleological or he, i think he used the word historicist historicism um i i believe even rajiv malhotra has written something similar to that point in one of his books um so yeah coming from karl popperson he said that because some intolerant people could take over a tolerant system and then lead to well permanent or near permanent extinguishing of all tolerance we have to struggle with the paradox of where to draw the line at absolute tolerance or absolute free speech or absolute uh full civil liberties and i think it's a fair paradox i think all of us a lot of political debate is about that trade off you know even after 911 in the us the patriot act happened in india we've had all kinds of anti terrorist acts where we are discussing civil liberties versus national security this is just a more religious equivalent of the same trade off and i agree that you know one way of starting which we already started doing this at least cut off foreign funds of proselytization right so like there is a difference between a citizen and a non citizen even if there is some free speech which is why i have been in favor of ca for all its faults it's not been operationalized yet yet like even if you have article 14 which by the way is not being properly applied even domestically for all citizens you have all kinds of unequal laws in india but even if it is assuming for a moment applied equally to all citizens it does not apply equally to non citizens in non citizens you can discern similarly for non citizens i think it's okay if we curtail directly indirectly try to reduce as much funding as possible for proselytization in india i think that is something the indian state must do now let's come to domestic evangelism on that my answer is very simple and slightly unorthodox i would say so long as somebody cannot freely criticize effectively islam and christianity in india because we have not have had enough state capacity of free speech to defend that person you know the person is free to say it but is he then safe after saying it uh so long as we cannot defend free speech which is critical of islam and christianity i think to be symmetrical it is okay for the indian state to even domestically to that extent curb evangelism by islam and christianity now my ideal scenario once again would be ideally if both were free to speak to criticize and to evangelize but i am definitely not okay with the situation where de facto criticizing is basically in a no go area but uh, zakir nayak can have massive stadium level meetings and say this is where the gita is wrong this is where there is wrong and if you don't want to burn in hell forever you should basically convert uh or as he might say revert so but so then, then, then i'll have a follow up here so i'll have to come in between sorry hers so but don't you think that is a wrong strategy because uh, to fix the asymmetry we go to the root of uh, authoritarianism rather than fixing the asymmetry don't you think so i agree it's a second best solution as i said it's not a first best solution it's not the op- it's not the optimal we don't know it's not the ideal solution it's not my north star as i said ideally i would like to see both criticism and evangelizing being free at least domestically for citizens but the point is it is not unfair for some people to say that you are saying about that is your north star that is your end end goal that's your final scenario but reality is it cannot be criticized right now effectively you know we had the calcutta quran petition in the 1980s uh, a shia leader has uh, made a petition in the supreme court to remove certain words i again i don't think these are very good attempts but at least that as rough attempts whatever they are they're trying to get somewhere whatever be the motivations 
since those clearly those people are under life of under threat of life we saw with kamlesh tiwari we saw with many other people they were killed uh in that case the indian state to get the goodwill of the majority of the people would at least have to show that these people are free that if somebody is printing certain cartoons a reformist muslim woman in mumbai she does not have to go underground when there is a bjp chief minister and a bjp prime minister and if she does have to go underground um then is it really that unfair as as wrong as it, it is i agree with what you're saying it, it's a slippery slope towards authoritarianism i understand that but i think that is what popper's paradox is that you actually you are basically throwing what is dear to you to preserve something that is even dearer and there is no objective line there is no sunlight between this is good enough and this is beyond this is not it is very subjective and i think that is what we are struggling with so every moment if we can work to increase the scope of fraternity and harmony in a society where these debates do not come up simultaneously increasing state capacity is every single is every extra moment we do not have to struggle with this trade off so i think modern political theory in the 21st century will be written in india it will depend on what india decides that's true so another good question was uh, what is stopping the state from making egalitarian humanist civil codes such that they always supersede all religion based personal laws make any regressive practice illegal across all faiths obviously this question i would twist it and make it about a hindutva state now uh, fa- the fact of the matter is that uh, currently in india there is only one political outfit that even talks about something like this being the bhartiya janata party only the bjp talks about anything of this sort in a uniform civil code but then there is harsh there is a line uh, of thought within you know the hindutva movement that does not like the uniform civil code they say hindus don't get anything out of it why should hindus care about the uniform civil code etc etc and there are many arguments that some are fearful that you know the ritual aspect of hinduism might be superseded by a ultra authoritarian state and they always cite the example of the indian state trying to take over hindu temples so what does one do in that kind of a scenario harsh see first of all let's not exaggerate that point of view um i i think i think it's a very small point of view on the hindu side or the hindu nationalist side that we should not have a ucc you'll, you'll see some comments online yes uh, but i think it's very standard rss and bjp line for a long time to have informal put and i i would not be surprised if we see serious effort towards that this very calendar year uh, i could be wrong of course um I, but how do you address it? whether it's a small point of view large point of view how do you address that and it, that's a good question and one obvious way of addressing that is well hindu civil laws have already been reformed it's not something that will happen in the future it has already happened there might be some discussions and debates whether you should increase the marriage age for women also from 18 to 21 like it is for men or you should not some people say it will be progressive to increase it other people say also rightly that well if you increase it you'll just make more marriages illegal or you know beyond the law because the reality is not changing as fast as you want it to in in some villages and small towns and even in some large cities so why you know they they might say actually reduce the marriage age for boys also to 20 or to 18 or let boys there's no rule of nature that boys must necessarily have a higher working age at least it's the same for all religions when it becomes uniform civil code so i think most of the modern reforms in terms of inheritance marriage and divorce and adoption has already happened in hinduism so what are you afraid of 
some of them are honest enough to say they want to reverse hindu code bills of the 1950s as well now that's an interesting proposition that you and i can debate with any such person i am absolutely sure they'll comprehensively lose it even by people who want to be again have a personal socially conservative morality it is very difficult to say now that oh well let's have inheritance which is half for a daughter by default compared to compared to a son in hindu society i think it will be very difficult to do that of course people write wills there are social realities of you know daughter marrying all that is there i'm not again saying it's not complex but i don't think there's any going back and saying let's have polygamy only for hindu hindu men but not for hindu women uh, or some other uh, kind of uh, by the way so hindu code have already been reformed so by now opposing ucc or common civil code because criminal code is already common interestingly then all you are basically saying is let hindu reforms continue and let some people be regressive a that's the soft bigotry of low expectations not very different from the nehruvian idea b that's tactically stupid as well we are coexisting in the same society whether we like it or not there is you cannot hermetically kind of seal sections of the society if you are seeing you saying there is love jihad which is over and above consensual relationships you're saying where some muslim men are deliberately introducing themselves as hindu men leading to relationships and you want to kind of stop that and they're saying well they attack physically if you marry a muslim woman and so on and so forth effectively what you are saying is there are two parallel societies something that even macron says you know one is becoming more and more progressive socially the other is either becoming regressive or is progressing far too slowly right now even there are a lot of nuances right i mean to some extent indian muslim women coming out in burkhas is their way of telling their fathers and brothers and sons that let me go to study and work because i am wearing this at least earlier they couldn't even go out to study and work so i'm not saying it's very simple there as well but you are basically saying we cannot have parallel societies uh, so why do you want sharia law in personal life or equivalent of in christianity or whatever it is uh, and let hindu laws become more and more progressive just let all laws be the same the way it is in the united states the way it is in canada the way it is in uk australia uh there we do not have separate laws by separate religions uh for marriage divorce adoption inheritance etc so um, i just don't understand the, I, i think it's just more out of uh i think it's saying for the sake of saying that we are against modernity like we are standing here and shouting stop you know uh i don't think there is any logic to that point because their point would be internally consistent if they actually are openly saying let us reverse hindu codes as well but actually most of them at least do not have the courage to say that openly uh so i think my point is very clear the reforms have happened here just make it all india make the hindu tax the hindu united family tax benefits the indian undivided family tax benefits all right um, so somebody somebody had a clarification from you so they have said did harsh mean that hindutva is not necessarily just a political ideology but a loose guiding principle that the whole country has been unconsciously standing or progressing along with without any pressure from the state i am adding the part without any pressure from the state well no no i no no i, I don't we can't say without any pressure from the state because it the the unconscious or the semi conscious the subconscious philosophy of the indian state is what we loosely call hindutva it has been so from day one from the days of nehru and patel from the days of nehru and patel there was a different treatment of uh, muslim and hindu refugees in uh, delhi and punjab side 
like there was an unsaid rule of there been exchange of population in delhi punjab haryana himachal it was not the same fully in bengal uh, on 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 day one in the very first few years we had the nehru liaquat pact why was nehru going out and saying hindu minority should be defended in pakistan east or west I mean, once you accept that in principle, how is it different to how is it different from CAA? Then you are only discussing and debating details. Um, you are not you are not saying I'll I'll not reform Islam, I'll not reform Christianity. I will reform Hinduism. I'll make it very progressive. I'll make sure people of all castes can enter temples and be pujaris, provided of course they have the right training. Not anybody can go and become a pujari. So in many ways, uh, it seems. If you go by what they did and not what they said, it was the guiding principle in a broader sense of the state. All right. So then, Harsh, uh, somebody has asked. Then, what would your vision be for the way the diversity of Hinduism exists? So, how are we going to define something like this? And then, it has to be supported by a dharmic state because. Uh, but I just want to add a caveat over here is this is not a one-off podcast. This is going to be a continuing discussion that both Harsh and I are going to have for a long, long time. So you have to understand in a cyber society as diverse as India, by society ko decode kar lehe, to bada hai. Ko ya to fir to to param gyan hi ho gaye. Fir bhi Harsh, bolo. No, uh, so sorry, what was question? What is the question again? So I'll repeat it. Uh, what is your vision for the way the diversity of Hinduism is going to be defined and supported by the Indian so, Dharmic state? So yes, I think it's an excellent question because some people say that, oh, well, you know, they use the words Raita or liberal Hindutva or whatever, and they say they're for homogeneity. That's not true at all. Like if any diversity, as I said, Dharma is the original multiculturalism. You, you, Hinduism is not Hinduism if it does not have diversity of parts in it. Like. Like dharma, the whole point of dharma, as I mentioned, was one brother is worshipping Shiva, the other is worshipping Durga Ma, a third is worshipping uh, Vishnu in, its very, in his various avatars. Uh, somebody is not going to mandirs for many years, but somebody is going to Vishnu Devi and you know, literally crawling up the hill on his stomach with maximum shraddha. So I, I don't see how uh, diversity can ever actually go away from Hinduism because that is literally what Hinduism is. What is happening, yes, is that uh, a lot of people are going from villages to cities. Their rootedness in general, not just about religion, in general, they're feeling deracinated. And in general, you can say the large gods are becoming more dominant than the quote unquote smaller gods in the sense that now you have Ganesh Puja in a massive way in Calcutta also. You could nice. Oh, yeah, so you could say that I mean Ganeshji has always been worshipped, not in a not in a Bombay style. Yeah. But now it's being worshipped in a Bombay style. Uh, and you can say, well, maybe there is some particular avatar or uh, you know version of Kali Mata which is importance because there is a national culture coming. Like people are seeing certain songs being for worship of Ganeshji in, in, in Bollywood movies, right? Or in some other movie in India. There's there is a there's a broader sense of you you get choices but by definition since everybody can only remember so much the choices might be instead of 10000 gods might be 100 gods mm -hmm. practically of course all the gods and you know, all whether the, the different versions the one is worshiped in a certain way in tamil nadu other is worshiped in a separate way in rajasthan all that is there but because in general there is the civilization state is becoming a nation 
on the margin you can say the choices seem to be effectively reducing a bit and i think that is also a proper worry to uh, to to keep in mind i'm not dismissing it it is a proper way to keep in mind because if uh, there might be something very peculiar to a way a particular god is worshiped in a particular city or a region and that might all just be kind of nationalized and mixed and matched there will obviously remain many many gods but that flavor that dexterity will go away and i think this is a similar kind of fear we have for languages a uh, similar kind of fear we have for food if you go to outside india and the food is nothing but punjabi food and you know somebody from odisha and karnataka saying like have you not had our food like what kind of nonsense are you eating in the name of indian food and most most, most of it is afghani or north indian or pakistani food right uh, so it is those kind of homogenizing anxieties are very normal and i think they will remain but of course uh you can the whole point of hinduism is that there is no pope there is no one book there is no one god even kashi is first among equals like kashi is not the vatican of hinduism is the first among equals you can say i mean because of its historical strategic position but if somebody does not want to come to kashi it's not like his life is not completed as a hindu he doesn't have to go to banaras to get moksha of course in popular culture we say you go to banaras you die there you're likely to more likely to get moksha that's fine so i think i think there is no question and i instead of us thinking about how it gets less diverse in india i would flip the question and say how do we become more diverse but globally how do we incorporate other non christian and non muslim gods how do we re- revive other indigenous traditions in europe in africa in the americas in china and japan how do we dissolve gradually the boundaries of hinduism with those traditions under the broader rubric of dharma i think so if you think nationally because because the world itself is becoming smaller if you just focus on india things will look look slightly more homogeneous but if you look at the world as a whole actually things will become much more diverse uh, and i think that's inevitable whether in this generation or in a couple of generations So now someone says why can't hindus just say we don't believe in dualistic monotheism and avoid giving a universal definition now this is the whole point of how india has deal- dealt with this legally the legal definition of hindu being a negation so why don't we just stick with the negative option and never try to give a positive definition no, i mean to, to some extent we are right i mean in the lowest common denominator sense we are uh, so but the point is that okay we are not this we are everything else Yeah. So, what the everything else can be, we're discussing those possibilities. But we are not saying that possibility defines the whole thing. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that question at all. All right. So, a couple of comments here. So, these are not questions, but I'm just reading them out. So, somebody has said, if Indian LGBT movement could lead their pride movements with references like Shikhandi and Kutathanestab. Kuthandeshwar, uh, their uh, Hindu cause, you know, their cause would be more accepted. I think it is accepted anyways. I don't know why. No, uh, no, I, I, I do agree that it will be more accepted, and I also do think that there is a there is a Western framework that we are copying that LGBT is against the right wing, and so you see at some LGBT prides, it is true, it's, it causes real tension. But they say down with Hindu fascism, right? So if if you have a big poster of down with Hindu fascism on, on an LGBT pride, uh. kind of parade in india in south bombay or south delhi then a lot of people who are on the margin whether we like it or not will say well you know you think i'm a bad guy why should i support you even though there is no fundamental theological reason for him or her to not support that person 
so i think i think all sides should be more sensitive like you know nobody is a permanent victim as such so i i broadly agree with that uh, tactic it's not a strategy it's a tactic to that extent yeah, so so one question was for me what is my position on ambedkarism and neo buddhism uh, uh i don't know what ambedkarism is if it's the thoughts and speeches of ambedkar i agree with a lot of things ambedkar says i disagree with many some things he says as far as neo buddhism is concerned i think you're talking about the neo buddhist movement which is very deeply marxist i i do not uh, agree I, I with that add, i just want to add one small thing i think it's a very excellent question neo buddhist movement the kind of the various vows that ambedkar took i think in 1956 just before his death some parts of it of course in a broader context i very much see him uh, in the rubric of dharma and in fact in many ways uh, very loyally committed to dharma more broadly but some of his vows were i will not believe in ram i will not believe in krishna i will not believe in xyz hindu gods and i think that particular those vows by themselves are a dharmic because he was not giving into that extent a positive vision of buddhism in india he was saying let us first start by saying this is false and i think to that extent it was neo marxist as you said to that extent it was abrahamic but it would be wrong to kind of interpret ambedkar just based on that but i i must say that those aspects were definitely jarring to a dharmic sensibility like you know like if you go to if you go to japan like shintoism and buddhism being separate is a modern interpretation of what actually happened in japan over the last 1000 years they were always intricately together these isms is a very problematic way of understanding dharma uh because then we we say well because people say well in in germany 50% are protestant 50% are catholic but in japan 80% are shinto 80% are buddhist yes because people can be simultaneously both that is the abrahamic way of thinking this is dharmic way of thinking uh so so i just wanted to add that uh, the those promises of ambedkar some of them were problematic yeah but the same ambedkar also spoke very highly of the upanishads no i agree uh, i said on the whole very much uh, a great man in our pantheon just those yeah. specific points i had to mention there. yeah i think he was a product of his social and political reality so we have to take everything when people write these things they are a product of their social and political reality and it stems out of there then again some same person had made a comment mr savarkar's definition of a hindu is like a gi tag it focuses on land then certain attributes of people living in it which can be copied elsewhere in the world now here's my problem with the geographical identity with hers is that it might have worked when hindus were not migrating outside india but now hindus migrate outside india there are third no, generation I, I, fourth I generation hindus you, i i agree with you kushal and i don't agree with savarkar's territorial definition of hindutva i think the real problem here is that abrahamic proselytizing religion fundamental problem with the dharmic sensibility uh, the territorial aspect is an outcome of that it is not a cause of this conflict and i think therefore the person who has asked this question has asked a very important question that of yeah. course savarkar's contribution is massive but we need to refine that to get away from the territorial aspect yeah so another question this is actually a good question are there any examples of institutionalized hindutva in modern india bjp doesn't count because they are merely managing some colonial era state machinery what do you think well as i said i think the fact that the government of india is giving money for dalits to marry non dalit hindus what what should we call that if if not at deliberately accelerating the organization of hindu society 
so i think the the single biggest hindutva institution in india is even pre bjp the government of india even during the congress governments nobody ever gave up on kashmir just just to be very clear nobody gave up on even punjab at the height of insurgency nobody ever gave up on north east in fact bangladesh was separated and sikkim was annexed goa was liberated uh, so you know i the government of india is the institutionalized version of hindutva so i mean again i'm not being cheeky it's just yeah i agree so one last question uh, so this is about state capacity versus free speech uh and obviously it's in context of our discussion today so keep the hindutva state as a larger rubric in your mind so if 100 million people criticize a particular religion on social me- in the social media era what is the worry the issue is when only one or two criticize 295a 153 etc why not get them scrapped no i agree those those laws should go and as kushal knows and a lot of people know they actually came in india around 1929 when incidents happened in punjab uh where hindu publishers were killed by some extremist muslims for writing some books like rangila rasool etc for publishing such books um so it came relatively late in the colonial era for a very clear purpose of murders because of the islamic doctrine of blasphemy um so why we are continuing with that is 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 a bit of a surprise to me as well now if you ask some people they say now that we are quote unquote we are in power we should tactically use it more once again i am not just dismissing that yes maybe but uh, strategically if you think 5 10 years down the road to what extent is that wise is an open question well see as far as i am concerned i have always been of a very simple point of view uh what do you achieve my question to everybody who says 295a 153a should stay on the books is how does anybody benefit from uh, you know 295a or 153a because i'll give you an example the abrahamic text literally says fundamentally the the pagan or the polytheist is going to hell you can't have bigger hate speech than that <laughs> so even if you ban everything else you can't ban that because that falls under freedom of religion the only way you criticize them is if you have the benefit of 295a gone so i have never understood this or see the abrahamic religion has to just read their text and do nothing else and they are still set so even when you have this kind of a scenario you just have see it is only the abrahamized hindu that feels good about this nobody else does and i say this all the time no i agree so i by the way just i wanted to add something i think this is the last question uh, so i just wrote in a uh, column today in economic times something about economic policy and finance but i just interestingly used a phrase you know the uh, i just wanted to make a bro- make a broader point here like in english we often say janus faced janus faced is somebody who is uh, duplicitous who is somebody who is deceiving you actually janus is a roman god like who would be at the gates of temples to protect that transition you know that transition um so the, almost like a watchdog god like a very benign god and this is a broader uh, way how everything around us is so abrahamically dominated right the word which is negative the word philistine is negative there was just a community with pre jewish pre uh, christian community in in, Pal- in in palestine uh the way the word pagan has a negative connotation uh the way uh, 
you know, a lot of uh, GOP supporters in the U.S. were saying Biden talking about the American soul is pagan nonsense. Right. So, and, and one judge actually in the U.S. said that only monotheistic religions def, uh, def, deserve the First Amendment protections. Luckily, that did not carry through. So we, we, we must realize that uh, we are in terms of present day power situations. The Abrahamic world is still very much more powerful collectively. But the big issue is that individuals thinking human beings within those very worlds openly in the Christian or post-Christian world and less publicly in the Muslim world because of their safety reasons. Everybody is questioning it. We cannot stop this surge of human questioning, whether that leads to quote unquote atheism, that leads to an acceptance of polytheism, that leads to a sense of just humility um, in the in just the awe of the universe. That questioning will not stop. And in that in that sense, I am extremely long and bullish on dharma because people will not accept what we started off by saying five minute answers to the life. Like that worked when they were busy and literally dying and they were hungry every day. But everybody rising up the Maslow's pyramid and they're thinking about, you know, what it means to be alive, what, what it is, our place in the universe. They, any kind of thing where you kind of give a child that 5,000 years ago the world was created. If you do this, you're going to heaven. If you're going to, it just not because it's not because it's funny, simply because it does not appeal to those very people. So I think it is important for India to create a facilitating environment for that human transition which is happening. It's not an Indian transition. And part of that, creating the facilitating of that human transition is to be open-minded and keep an eye on the larger picture. You don't have to be that uh, touchy on if somebody's attacking you specifically, so long as the larger trends are in your favor. Uh, the larger trends are in our favor. Uh, we still have to defend what is rightfully ours. Uh, but we just need to have a slightly more, I would say, bigger heart for that. And for that, I get a lot of criticism occasionally. I understand that. Just everybody cannot understand the other person's intentions, rightly so. But I do think this, this century is where India really shows the way spiritually. Uh, not because India suddenly become great. That's only a small part of it. But because the world is now ready to receive that message. And so we, we really have to play a global game now, not, not an Indian game. I, I agree with you. And I think, uh, you know, before we wrap things up today, I just wanted to make a few closing comments here. See, when you have a topic like what is dharma, what is Hindutva, what is Hinduism? So Hindi, Hindi and that's a fact because the very nature of, you know, Indic faiths or Indic epistemology or, or Indic ideas was the built in by default pluralistic mechanism. If you have a built-in by default pluralistic mechanism, you will always struggle as to, okay, how do I define this? How do I define that? So the only working way around that, at least in my experiences, is you always deal with problem, one problem at a time. So you deal with, let's say, you know, evangelizing Christianity or, or you know, madrasas preaching hatred or uh, let's say violent Hindutva. Yeah, I'm going to include that too in the discussion. So you, you go by one problem at a time and then you gauge that problem. You gather, try to gather some data. I think India's biggest problem is a lack of data also in a very weird way because we just don't know what to do. And then you start looking at things through some philosophical prisms. The biggest problem, I always say this on the podcast, India's problem is not colonization. India's problem is Abrahamization. 
our minds are so abrahamized that we think that everything is about oh you know it's very fashionable and i see this within a lot of hindu circles especially out of india it, it gets to me like we will drop words like you know tweets stress me out tweets stress you out to life kya karegi tumhare sath so you know you have to get over these things look at a larger picture look at these you know, look at the popper's paradox look at many other things and once you start deabrahamizing your mind where you actually declutter your mind from a lot of these baggages that you carry which i think stem from your own insecurities you will look at the larger picture and the aim i'll once again repeat the aim of today's podcast is not to give you answers sometimes podcasts are meant to give you questions sometimes podcasts are meant to make you think hang on we have not figured this out guys or gals we need to figure this shit out we need to get more out of this this may not be the first and last discussion you know maybe you guys will write more to harsh and i you can you know tweet at harsh you know both our twitter handles or maybe leave a comment below we may read them we may find more insight through your insights and we may reconvene again so that's the whole idea so get this thing in your brains that these kinds of discussions are a work in progress they are never never a one size fits all kind of a solution so on that note once again harsh thanks a lot for coming on the podcast it's always a pleasure to talk to you and hopefully we will go on having such interesting discussions Well, thank you so much, Kushal. I just obviously want to close by saying, "Ekam satra satra viprabhoda vadanti." Prime Minister Modi often says that, and it's a good, it's a good uh, note to end on. So you know, it, we are for diversity of views, but we are not for relativism. We are not saying that there is no truth if we are opposing one truth. We are saying there are different ways to look at the truth. So I just want to end on that note. All right, guys. Uh... it's time to wrap things up if you like the podcast please subscribe to the channel like the video share the video leave a comment let's see what is your definition of dharma hinduism hindutva leave your definitions definitions and in the comment section or maybe you know you can even tweet it out if you want to support the charvak podcast you can become a member on youtube or you can subscribe on patreon Holi is around the corner, so you can buy an, uh, a lot of Charvak podcast merch. I have a Holi T-shirt also, and I have dedicated a new T-shirt to you know the greatest academic on planet Earth, Audrey Trusky. Please go and support uh, Audrey Mata, Audrey Mata ki jai. And on on that note, I will leave you guys for the day. Take care. Goodbye.